A lot of you are familiar with the DNA Project and have been rocking with us for a while, but some of you aren't. A lot of you are faithful listeners of the podcast, but aren't familiar with some of the other work that we do. So I just want to take a quick moment to explain to you a little bit more of what we do. So you're getting married, or you have a friend, a cousin, a sister, somebody you know is getting married. Okay. You've booked your venue, caterers, photographer, all that good stuff. When it comes to live music, most people have no idea where to look. We have you covered. Picture this. During the ceremony, while guests are being seated, or while the bride's walking down the aisle. During the cocktail hour, while guests are just mingling and having a good time. Don't forget about dinner music. That's very important to set the mood while guests eat. And we definitely can't forget the party. Let's get the party started right now with The DNA Project. www.thednaproject.ca for more information. Hello, bonjour, and wagwan. Welcome to the DNA Airwaves. Today's episode is brought to you by the MPL, Toronto's and the world's modular film and audio studios. If you're working on a film, TV, or audio project, please head over to the-mpl.com. Again, that's the-maplewithoutthevowels.com. Today's podcast is also brought to you by the DNA Project. For any and all of your live entertainment needs, please visit thednaproject.ca. Today's guest is Ryan Altshuler. Ryan is a Toronto entrepreneur specializing in rehearsal spaces and film audio. We spoke with Ryan about his story, particularly about the part where he turned his passion into a viable business. Stay tuned. This is the DNA Airwaves. John, yeah, John was the one who was like, check out my new toilet. And we're like, <laughs> cool. Six string toilet. All right, but well. It sounds great. It's great. We went live. We didn't even do a little bit of uh, prep details, none of that. So here we are. <laughs> we know who Ryan is. We're ready to fresh. go. <laughs> Over eager Dariki. How you guys doing? <laughs> We're great. We're great. Good, good, man. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us, man. Really yeah. appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, Glad to be here. Thanks yeah, for inviting no, me. Oh, no, pleasure. I know we talked about doing this a few times and the world's been a little crazy, so we've had mm-hmm. to reschedule and push things back and here we are today. So I'm excited about this. Um, and I don't really know your story, so I'm actually really interested in hearing a little bit more about you too. I know some of the cool things that you've done recently and throughout, but I guess to start, how did you get started? Were you Did you start off as a musician or... Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I guess going way back when, I've been a musician my whole life. So I grew up, I was playing in bands from a pretty young age. I grew up, started playing piano lessons. I began when I was maybe five, six years old. Okay. Uh, I went through the Royal Conservatory. So I played a lot of classical actually growing up, which yeah. at the time I didn't love so much. But actually, as I got older and became a teenager, I started yeah. to actually really appreciate it and getting into it. And uh, I switched piano teachers when I was about 12 or 13, and I kind of found a teacher who was just fantastic, and we really spent about half our time learning, doing the classical stuff, doing the conservatory stuff, but then he incorporated a lot of jazz, rock, pop, R&B into my playing as well. We started experimenting with a lot of like sort of beat making and other stuff, sort of in its infancy at the time. Obviously, technology was a lot different back <laughs> yeah, then. Yeah, changed. Yeah, and then yeah, and then my whole world opened up in terms of what was capable on the piano, and you know, my whole musical world really blossomed from there. And I, that's nice. probably what kind of uh, kickstarted me to start playing in bands. So mm. I think I joined my first band when I was about 15 or 16 years old. And then all through high school, I uh, played in pit bands in my high school. And then I nice. played in a jam rock band, an alt rock band, 
both bass and keyboards. And um, nice. that's kind of what was the start of my, you know, my love of music, per yeah, se. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah. Very so cool. that was um, that was kind of phase one, and then um, I actually studied, began studying psychology in undergrad, and I was gonna focusing more on actually neuroscience and auditory neuroscience specifically. So, yeah, I never really considered that I was going to go into the music industry professionally at the time or otherwise. In fact, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at the time, but um, I was always a science guy, right? Yeah. I was never so much into the languages or 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 the arts outside of music for that matter either, right? Yeah, I was always right. terrible at visual arts. I never really had much of an inclination towards that at all or any ability for that matter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so then in um, in university... I went more the science route, but it was actually, that's what actually got me interested in the music production aspect of things, because I had a few right. really cool profs who had cross appointments in the faculty of neuroscience and psychology and uh, music and music cognition. And a mm. lot of them were fantastic musicians themselves. And some of them were even like uh, award-winning recording engineers and what have you. And yes. um, that's kind of what got the, tickled the uh, bone to start getting more interested in the production of behind the scenes aspect of music and audio. Right. So Very from cool. there, after I uh, after I finished my undergrad degree, I sort of said to myself, "Okay, what next?" Well, I wasn't so sure I was feeling the science thing anymore, so I decided, <laughs> you know what, let's uh, let's let's test this out and see if I actually want to make a go and make a career of getting involved in the music industry and going into audio production. Hmm. So yeah. I got a post grad degree at the Harris Institute, which you guys may have heard of. It's a private yep. Uh, yep. music college in Toronto. Yeah. And then my kind of whole world of production just kind of blossomed and opened up for me. And things really snowballed from there. And that's when I started to, that was the beginnings of sort of my career in the industry. So, so that's what kind were of the, the next steps? What was the business plan? All right. So good question. <laughs> so part two or part three, rather. So I graduated yeah. from Harris. Um, I got a production degree, not in, not in management. So it was more okay. technical, focus on the technical aspects of music and audio production. Yeah. Right. So out of Harris, you do have to do a mandatory internship when you graduate the program. So I landed an internship and I got really lucky with this at a studio called Subterranean Sound. Um, it was in the annex. It was actually in the basement of the one of the owners of Spin Master Toys, which is now a huge toy company. He was one of the wow. co-owners of the studio. Oh, but there were two engineers and producers who co-ran the studio. And I was working under one of them. His name is Scott Lake. And he's a mastering engineer at Metalworks. He did a lot of the work for um, Big Sugar, if you remember that band from the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he worked a lot with um, <clears throat> Our Lady Peace, him and the other okay. engineer there. I think his name was uh, Zeke Al-Halal. Something nice. to that effect. I might be remembering that incorrectly. And um, so I got an internship there, and I interned there for about three or four months. And as great, you know, as good as the audio schools, are, like Harris was in the audio schools, yeah, it really teaches yeah. you what to, it shows you what sort of high-level view of what's available in the opportunities in the music industry. But for as sure. far as the actual, like, real-world skills, and I think the same goes for all the audio schools. You only kind of scratch the surface, right? <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that's where I really went from not really having any employable skills to actually really learning how to work in a recording studio, right? Okay. And we had a big, um, a big, big analog console there with you know, tons and tons of outboard gear. It was much more of an old school studio, but we were trained in school to know how to operate those boards to a limited degree. What console degree. was it for those of us who are curious? You know what? I'm try I can't even remember to tell you the truth. It was, I'm probably dating myself. That was almost 15 years ago now. So, um, <laughs> crazy how much that's like changed. That 15 years ago, a, a big console, not to say that it isn't relevant anymore, but it's certainly yeah. not a must. 
15 no, years. No, not at all. Yeah. Exactly. So I can't remember. I can't recall. I'm sorry. But um, <laughs> they had ridiculous, ridiculous outboard gear there. Like we're talking about um, vintage Pultec EQs, um, like the original 1176 compressors. It must have been like half a million dollars worth of outboard gear, right? Yeah, those things are pretty So expensive. because it was kind of, it was kind of a... The studio, because of the co-ownership, no, it was owned by, as I said, like one of the owners of Spin Master, who obviously yeah. had a, has a few bucks in the bank, combined yeah, yeah, with two yeah. very experienced recording engineers and producers who pooled all their resources together to build this thing. So right. obviously the gear was really, uh, you know, reflected that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. um, and they had a lot of multi-track tape machines, a lot of the old school stuff, and it's everything there sounded phenomenal. But uh, coming in as an intern, I was just like, nope holy shoot, right? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, uh, it, was kind okay. of, it felt like definitely a bit over in over my head in terms of you know, my ability to actually contribute meaningfully to the uh, the operations there. But I had a really, really good boss who was Scott, the, uh, um, the engineer I was working under, and he really showed me the ropes pretty quickly in terms of really trying to get uh, comfortable with working a lot of the gear. So nice. um, through the internship, I started off, you know, mostly just doing copy runs and cleaning speakers and stuff. And by the end, he was letting me actually drive Pro Tools for some of the sessions. And um, a few really notable ones during my internship, we got um, Garth Hudson, who was a keyboardist from the band, came in, who was doing mm -hmm. some session work. Yeah. That guy was just blew my mind. And another notable one was when Kanan came in, actually. And this is before he actually blew up in like the early 2000s or mid 2000s. I just listened to yeah. the Dusty Foot Philosopher yesterday. What are the Did you? <laughs> there you go. So he came into the studio to do pre-production for, I yeah. think... Uh, Probably for that album at the time. When, when, what year did that come out? Uh, um, oh, give or take. Seven, oh, nine, yeah, around say, oh, nine. That's that was right. my guess. There you yeah. go. So there was, he was definitely in pre-production for that album because my internship was in 2007. So. That album is yeah. very good and it's very Canadian. And it's also really great uh, talking about immigrant life and how different people end up in this country. Really recommend big, that album. Big time. Phenomenal. And you worked and, on it. Awesome. I worked on the pre-production, and he, as you know, Kanan was uh, not that big at the time. He was just kind of an no. emerging artist, and yeah. no one had any idea. So that was almost what was so cool. And he was the nicest guy in the world too. He was. We just remembered being just you no know, such such a just an easy session, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, good one. And that waving flag yeah. too. If anybody's wondering, when I get older, I will yeah. be stronger, stronger. Probably stronger. Oh, yeah, so when I get older, the Olympics, I will that, be right? strong. Yeah. They call yeah. me freedom, just yeah. like I right, right. right. So one of the biggest tracks nice. in the world for that year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's huge. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so, anyways, conti continuing the story, then um, I finished up my internship. I think it was, like I said, three, four, five months, and then mm -hmm. it was kind of a what next. So they actually offered me part-time contract work at that studio. Nice. So I started working there part-time. Um, and at the same time, I had a few friends who were pretty actively involved in music video production and the film industry. Mm. So uh, the studio did, did was purely a music studio. They did almost very, very little film and television or audio work for film and TV. Okay. So because we were taught it in school and because I had some friends and connections in the industry, that's how I started filling in the rest of my time. I started doing audio for really, really budget music videos and started getting some calls for some friends saying, hey, in your mind, can you can you time stretch this in order for, for this piece of, uh, you know, for a music yeah. video and so on. 
And so things started to kind of grow very slowly but steadily from there. Sort of, and at the same time, as I said, I was doing contract work for the studio as an employee now. Mm-hmm. So um, a big turning point, which again, I attribute nothing more to dumb luck, was that the studio, <laughs> fast forward about six months, actually decided to go completely private. Um, right. It was in this guy's basement, yeah. and they decided that he decided that they don't really want to entertain sort of just be open to the general public anymore. And they wanted to be more of a, a personal studio, but inviting select clients, right? No? Nope. Oh, wow. That's oh. As, as opposed to, sorry, yeah. as opposed to just people knocking on the door saying, y'all got some mics, or how does that work? <laughs> that's right. So instead mics. of just being advertised as like a, a uh, public commercial recording studio, they decided to go private and sort of by select invite association connection only kind of a thing. Interesting. So, oh. yeah. Yeah, so because of that, um, I was operating, I had a very small, modest home studio at the time. Yeah. They kind of gifted me a good number of their clients that some of the clients that were more public clients that they didn't necessarily wanted to continue having them come to the studio. Not for personal yeah, reasons too. or anything, just because yeah. they're just trying to, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Thinner. because of that, it gave me the opportunity yeah. to invest a bit more in, in, in equipment in my studio, yeah. home studio. And that's what allowed me to kind of start to make a full-time go of it mm. and so between those clients and a little bit of traction and doing audio for film and tv that's kind of how that was sort of the beginnings of the business essentially in a in a proper capacity wow. and that was in it around 2008 now so that was 13 years ago and that's oh, wow. that's interesting because i'm when when you look at sort of what happens after you go to medical school, right? There's uh, residency. You don't just go. I'm a doctor now, and you're done, and you go out, and you doctor people. Is that a term? Uh, but it's yeah. sort of it's the same thing with audio, and it's almost it's interesting because I've seen people from film school and from audio school and anything to do with with the technical arts really, where they come out thinking, okay, I, I've I have a diploma, right? I'm I'm a pro now, and then they quickly realize that it's they're not even close. They basically mm-hmm. learned the basics just so that they can enter a studio space. Yeah. And if that, That's yeah, right. if, yeah, if well, that, it's it's. Yeah. I, I remember after yeah. school coming into a studio and them testing everybody to see if people can coil cables because yeah. there's just so many things that you learn <laughs> that you have to do really quickly, and e- even when you learn it, doing it in practice is very different. And that's something that. Um, maybe is being lost a bit as studios are shrinking. More people can create music on their own in very high quality, and that's amazing, but there's a lot less... There's more YouTube sharing and all that, but there's a lot less uh, apprenticeship where you get to sit right next to somebody yeah. uh, the same way doctors do with their residency, and, and, residency mm-hmm. and, and really see what's going on. There's all kinds of stuff that you just can't pick up from a textbook. And... Um, at the same time, it's a it's a huge race to be an intern too, right? A lot of people are willing to do it for free, and a lot of people are finishing schools, and they need that internship. And there's not enough room for everybody, and then there's also exploitation that happens. So it's incredible that you found a place that actually took care of you and actually showed you things that didn't only send you on coffee runs, which is part of the deal, right? That's sort of how you earn your keep in those early days, but. It's yeah, it's yeah. nice to to see sort of the I don't want to call it the old school way because it's just a good way of doing it but yeah the old school way of of picking these things up so then what was next for you yeah you're absolutely right with everything you said um, so what was next um, so that was in around two thousand eight and um, 
for the next um, phase, maybe we'll call it 2008 to about 2013, the next five okay. years, it was mm-hmm. kind of a slow and steady build. I continued to operate out of the home studio. Yep. Um, right. And But what happened was things started to grow um, with slowly but surely for those first few years, say 2008 to about 2011, with respect to mostly audio for film and television. The music stuff was still there, and it was still there in the background. Yeah. Um, but I was, no, nope. I think I realized I was, I was going to be, I had the capability of being a decent audio engineer, maybe a decent producer, but I wasn't yeah. really sure if I had it in me in order to sort of take it to that really professional level and, and mm-hmm. make that, you know, and build a studio yeah, of my, a proper studio of my own. It's so hyper-competitive, and I... Frankly, I think there are a lot of people out there who, who are a lot better than me, even with a <laughs> similar enough. level of, of experience. <laughs> so, but what I started to realize is I did have very much have a knack for audio for film and television, something I was also very passionate about. And I had the opportunity because I had connections in the industry. Yeah. And a lot of it requires, no, a, maybe a bit of a different sort of business acumen. And that's something that came more naturally to me. Mm. And at the same time, fortunately, the industry although the music industry was having facing huge headwinds everywhere in the world at the time, right? Yeah, because what yeah. was happening with everything moving towards streaming and plummeting yeah. CD sales and all that. Yeah. The film industry was picking up big time, picking up steam in the city. So the mm-hmm. need for the service providers like audio was, was only increasing. So I was fortunate that it didn't really have to market much, but I started getting more and more calls and, you know, from producers and directors and you know, friends of those uh friends of those friends or colleagues of those friends who called me initially starting to ask for more and more stuff. So another big uh, turning point in the development of the career was in and around 2011, 2012, when I started getting some calls, not just for studio work, but saying, hey, could you come out and do uh, record an interview out in this location? I think yeah. the first one I got was actually Julie Black, who I'm sure you guys know. Yeah, yeah she was on yeah, the podcast. Yeah. Shout out that's, to Julie. There you go. Yeah, yeah. And now a client of Lynx. Things came around full circle, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I don't, I, don't she, I don't she remembers this, but I was thinking it was through a music video production company called The Field, who I used to do quite a bit of work for. Mm, and nice. that was my first quote-unquote uh, location call to actually go out and record an interview. So, of course, the business was still kind of young, right? And I yeah, was basically yeah. the point I was going to take on any audio contract that got thrown at me, whether I could do a good job or not, right? <laughs> right, yeah, right <laughs> you yeah. just kind of in those <laughs> days say yes to everything. Yeah, yeah. So I went out and I said, sure, I could do it. So I think I picked up my, at the time, I think it was uh, an Apogee Ensemble, which is completely not appropriate for a location recording. And I <laughs> grabbed a couple of mics, whatever I had around the studio, maybe even in like an SM7 or something. Mm-hmm. And I went out and I kind of, you know, did as much scramble, did as much homework as I could, given the two days of notice or whatever it was. And I went out and probably did a very mediocre job of recording the interview. (laughs) But, you know, obviously I quickly learned that afterwards that, okay, you know, I could uh, immediately identify a bunch of areas for improvement. And then I actually did some more research and homework and talked to some people and go, oh, wow, I really should have done it completely differently. So (laughs) I got a call to do, I think it was uh, a few weeks later to do something similar for a different artist. And I did a much better job this time around. And it looked like there was definitely a need in the industry in order to, to, there was a lot of opportunity for 
people be able to do field field audio recording, specifically for dialogue and in the film and TV industry. Maybe not so much for for live music recording at the time. They go, okay, this seems like a good growth area for the business. That's something yeah. I think I can wrap my head around and interested in getting involved with. Yeah. So I started to market myself a bit more in that direction as well. Mm-hmm. And fast forward a few months later, I started getting um, calls for some short indie films in order to do the dialogue recording. So, Sorry, before, can I stop you there yeah. for a quick second? Yeah, second? yeah, of course. So sure. you mentioned that you had the Julie Black interview, and then shortly after you had another one where you had learned. I'm kind of curious, what were some of your takeaways? Because you mentioned um, uh, not choosing the right microphones and things like that. So what's kind of a comparison? Like, what would be the difference between your initial and then what you had learned when you did the follow-up? Yeah, great so. question, of course. So first, I realized, because quickly, that... The studio mic collection was completely ill-suited to for for mostly for dialogue recording out in the field, mainly because of its directionality. So, and this is not really we never really studied location sound recording at all in school. We maybe had one class where we touched upon it, but again, it was mm. it was a guest lecture, a one-off class kind of a thing. We just told you a bit about the industry. So I quickly afterwards I did some research and realized, oh shoot, you know, I went out there trying to record. Uh, dialogue with an SM57, and the mic had to be off camera, right? So, yeah, right. hey, an SM57 <clears throat> is a phenomenal mic, but only if you're within about eight inches of the person's mouth, right? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Once you yeah. get it to, and, and it was a pretty wide frame, right? There is a good yeah. foot, foot and a half, two feet of headroom. And uh, I don't even know if I was aware of it at the time that the mic had to be at a frame, but, they, but the camera op or the cinematographer said, hey, that mic can't be in here. So I go, oh, shoot. So I had to get it at a frame, and then all of a sudden... Uh, the dialogue was clean, problems. but it was yeah. it was the signal to noise was, was crap, right? Yeah, yeah. So I did my research afterwards and go and and said, oh shoot, nobody in this no no professional sound recordist in the world tries to use an SM57 on set for dialogue recording when you have to mic from a distance, right? Fair great enough. for a, yeah. great for a podcast, but <laughs> that, that's kind of the thing you, you learn about it. But then it, there's an inclination, even if you're in the industry. When you're learning, like you can't, you need to use this kind of microphone, not this one. Especially if you only have microphone A and you paid a lot for it, you're like, ah, I'll be fine. It's a mic. <laughs> totally. It, yeah. It's a mic. And then exactly. You go in the field, and then you come back, and this is actually the br- the brunt goes on post production, right? That that phrase will do yeah. it in post, which is a horrible phrase. Where you get it, and you're like, there's wind noises. I can hear the hands on the boom pole moving around. Uh, I can hear dogs barking in the background. It's all because something as simple as choosing the the wrong microphone. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's nothing like like a good ass kicking in the field that you can't <laughs> repair later to to really sort of feel how important it is that that these things make a difference. The different lenses, different microphones, different lights, different modifiers. All those mm-hmm. things come into play when it comes to media storytelling, even though technically a camera is a camera and a microphone is a microphone. It's like paintbrushes. There's different thicknesses. Um, and uh, a great analogy. Yeah, yeah and, and, and the cool thing, or, or the terrible thing, is that n- no one watching is going to go, oh, did he use a, a cardioid microphone instead of a hypercardioid? No one's going to think like that, but it just yeah. feels wrong. And people like it a little bit less, and they just click away, and they don't know why. So it's right. it, it's an amalgam of all these small decisions and, and choices along the way just to get things to sound normal, right? Like someone is just speaking. It's a lot yeah. more of a challenge than people think. Okay, so we went uh, through that portion of your career. 
mm-hmm. we know that there's more after that. So yeah, how, so how did you more. jump from there into links or was there any yeah. other steps along the way? Yep, absolutely. Good question. So in the background, while all this was happening. I was still playing music as a hobbyist and still in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe I can, my band can one day make it as a, as a, as a pro band. And I was playing oh, somewhat nice. seriously through most, through most of those years in a band called The Show, which is a, a jam rock band that mm-hmm. I formed with uh, some of my old friends, high school and, uh, and even grade school friends. Can we hear any so, of the music? No, definitely not. Uh, we'll <laughs> no it. way. No, no, no. We're media people. I don't even know. We'll it'll, be, it'll be too embarrassing. We were never very good. But, uh, oh, but we had fun. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe if you uh, if you have a spy cam on an on a on a night, you can <laughs> come here as play and jam for fun at, at links. Oh, but anyways, um, so we were from about that time around 2007. We had a monthly rehearsal room at uh, mm-hmm. no one of our our friendly competitors' facilities, not far away. Not far um, away. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, yeah. Uh, um, so we had this room, and we were sharing it with a few other bands. And from about the 2006, 2007, when we first got this monthly room, all the way through to when we opened our facility in mm-hmm. 2017, we yeah. had we had a monthly room that entire time. Oh, wow. So we had, my buddies and I and colleagues and I had about a 10-year tenure renting monthly and often hourly rooms at mostly one facility, but a few different rehearsal facilities around the city. So yeah. because of that... And because I was still jamming there and rehearsing there and sharing it with bands, and I was the one organizing it, right, in terms of, like, the room share and what have you, yeah. I got com- fairly comfortable and familiar with the uh, the, the rehearsal Process. model, right? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. So, um, so fast forward from about 2011 onwards to about 2013, mm-hmm. I had a very old friend of mine who is a bit of an audio genius himself he was building speakers like from hand from when he was like seven years old and yeah so from about 2011 onwards he started to doing some work with me part-time and i realized also around that time one of the reasons why we decided to start informally partner up is not only because he's just a very talented and smart guy but the business was growing to the point where it was getting to the point where i couldn't handle the workload myself right so We started working together in about 2011, and then fast forward another year or two, now that we had two hands on deck, we could really had the opportunity to have a bit of a division of labor and really start to try and grow things a little bit more. Right. So the next big break came in about 2012, and now at this point we were sort of had a formal partnership going. For the gotcha. business and we got a contract to do all of the location sound recording for four feature films all in a row low budget yes. indie movies but obviously okay, okay. this was by far the biggest contract we got to date yeah, yeah. So what that allowed us to do is to take our sort of location sound setup which really at that time consisted of a pretty basic field recorder set of headphones and you know one sort of uh location sound microphone and yeah. make the jump and really invest in a fully professional kit with pro top top of the line wireless systems and sort of the whole caboodle, right? Because that's mm-hmm. what was required, and you know, through the course of the four movies, it allowed us to pay it off, pay off the, uh, pay off the kit pretty quickly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a huge step forward in terms of uh, the growth of the business and allowed us to really take our location sound recording capabilities from kind of indie movie one-off interviews and really jump it forward to to now start becoming a real no player at least as a freelancer or as a, a couple of partners in the industry 
Yeah. And yeah. still at the time, because this was a huge jump for us, we still were not that good at what we were doing. And uh, it was definitely a stretch for us, but we muddied our way through it. He was the recordist. I was the boom operator myself. <laughs> and we didn't get fired, and we made our way through. And I'm um, trying to keep things a little bit uh, tighter here, time-wise. <laughs> Over the course of the next couple of years, we our location business really started to take off from there because we got those movies under our belt. Now we had a pro kit and something to show for it. And over the course of the next two years, that was we kind of experienced pretty exponential growth in that side of the business. So mm -hmm. by the time we picked up the warehouse, which we bought in 2015, which turned into Lynx Music, we'll get there shortly, we already had three location sound kits, and my partner was responsible for doing post-production at the time. Yeah. Um, we hired on our first employee, full-time, which is Jacob, who's now the studio manager at Lynx. Oh, sorry, quick pause right there. Yes, yes. Sometimes we just like to clarify things just because there's such yeah. a broad um, range of listeners. You mentioned the Absolutely. location sound kit. Could you just quickly let us know what that is? Yes. Location count sound kit is a full audio kit that is built uh, specifically for audio field recording, mainly for recording dialogue for films, TV shows, movies, commercials, corporate shoots. And that okay. pretty much consists of a portable field recorder, um, which has sort of preamps, A to D converter, and then buses or sends all in one compact uh, uh, recorder that you can kind of wear over your shoulder or on a card okay. based. And then okay. a series of wireless microphone systems, including a lav mic, transmitters and receivers, and yeah. usually a variety of different uh, microphones that you mount onto boom pulls, which are very directional microphones that are specifically engineered for picking up dialogue often at distances when the mic has to be out at a camera. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah, okay. that's basic. That's basically the gist of it. So um, moving ahead to about 2013-14, the location business really started to grow a lot. Yeah. We now owned three location sound kits because we were getting taking on multiple jobs a day. We yeah. took on uh, for our first full-time employee, my partner and I, which is Jacob, who's currently the studio manager of Lynx Music. And we started to hire out other location recordists to service our clients on a contract basis as well, because most of the location recording industry were consisted of freelancers. Uh, Jacob himself was started becoming responsible for doing a lot of the actual post-production work itself, whereas um, my partner and I started to take on a more of a business management strategy role, although we were still actively doing a lot of the work ourselves too. Oh, so, nice. so that was kind of the next phase of growth for the business. Got you. Yeah. And and that I guess that's about 2014-ish, and I think that's you said right. 2015 you bought the space. So how did that you, happen? All right. So fast forward to 2015, um, things continued to grow, and. Remember, we were still operating out of a really small home studio that oh, yeah. uh, okay. <laughs> that I was still that the same studio that I was still operating it up during my internship. So now we had three of us working out of there. No one was yeah. living there anymore, but now we had three locations sound kids. We were basically bursting at the seams. So we All knew right. we needed uh, we needed to grow, right? And we outgrew our yeah. space. So another one of my one of my best friends from high school, who was my best friend to that day was also a fantastic musician. He decided to pursue a different career path, which was in construction. Uh -huh. um, and at the time, he was doing really well for himself. He was a senior project manager at a big construction company. And mm. I'm talking really big jobs. He was the project manager for 
projects, sometimes in excess of like $100 million, huge, huge build-outs, including facilities. Yeah. Yeah. So his latest project that he just uh, built out was the huge renovation of the Toronto Centre for the Arts, which which Mm, you guys probably know. Yeah, yeah. So at the time, he was bringing in a wealth of construction expertise and specifically for performing art spaces and, and, and acoustically sensitive spaces. Right. So... You know, through all the years, as we kept in touch, we kind of had this dream in the back of our minds that one day, because we also were in bands together and played music together, that, hey, you know what, wouldn't it be cool and nice if we could build our own audio and music facility and rehearsal facility that bands could rehearse in? Because, as you guys might know, a lot of the places around town are kind of dingy and, you know, it's just just like they don't really pay attention to the details (laughs) and there were some things that are left to be desired, right? We know that the quality standard, generally speaking, was fairly low. Yeah. yeah, And uh, we thought, you know what, it doesn't take, you know, there's an opportunity here to do a lot better because despite that, a lot of these places did very, very well for themselves because there's just so much demand, right? Exactly. So our business was growing. We knew we needed a new home for, um, for our film and TV business that was growing a lot, even our post business. And mm-hmm. so, no, this other friend of mine and I started talking and realized, you know what, maybe we could actually kill a few birds with one stone here. And at the time, we were also at the point where we knew we could make a bit of a real estate investment ourselves. Yeah. Neither of us actually owned a, owned, a, owned a house or anything like that. So we decided, <laughs> you know what? Let's pool our resources together and borrow as much money as we can. And let's actually start looking for an investment here together that we can yeah. actually not only find a new home for audio process, which is our film and television business yeah. and our studio business, but also mm-hmm. let's actually see if we can find something that's big enough, if we can do it in order to actually had this dream in the back of our minds, let's actually maybe make it a reality too. So wow. after searching for a while, we, I won't get into the details, but we kind of landed a, a bit of a needle in the haystack with, uh, with Lynx Music and the warehouse there. Yeah, it was yeah. an old electrical warehouse, to make a long story short, that actually went into receivership and there was a power of sale. There was a whole backstory and scandal involved with the property. Not on our end, so I'm not incriminating okay, myself. Fair totally. enough. <laughs> but it allowed us to, you know, sort of uh, with, the, with a bit of risk involved, take the plunge and put an offer in. And sure enough, we got the building and nice. we started getting our uh, design process started with our architectural team and design team. And fast forward about another year and a half, a uh, very long and winding road and very difficult process. We turned this warehouse into, into Lynx Music, which now nice. co-housed both our current nine rehearsal rooms and recording rooms mm. you get that, you, uh, that are currently there and us yeah, also yeah. home to our, to our film and TV business. It's uh, something that people don't think about too much, especially in the, in the world of, um, shouldn't say world, but in, in the realm of computer music, where you can create music at home, but w- when it comes to acoustic instruments, you a- and playing what I would call in real time. So there, there's a way of making music where you lay out down the drums, then you do the keys, then you send your friend the files, and they put down vocals. But it, it, the process of doing things in real time is, al- although it seems just slightly more complicated, it's a lot more complicated. Um, you can't do things like that over the internet. And if you're playing acoustic instruments, there's a good chance that you'll start overpowering each other very quickly, right? If somebody's got a guitar and mm-hmm. somebody else has drums, even if the person playing the drums can play quieter, which is really not a great way to practice, uh, the guitar is going to turn uh, it, the volume up and so on and so on. So yeah. rehearsal yeah, yeah, yeah. spaces have been 
uh, a serious necessity, especially for people that maybe can't store drums at home. And we talked to Jared Falk about that before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, true. So <clears throat> the people need rehearsal spaces, especially when it comes to people making music together in real time and the experience that you get there is important first of all you need a place that can take a lot of volume then if if you want that business to be scalable you need to put a few of those into the same space so that's where construction is really important because making noise is one thing you have to find a location that is quiet enough that you won't bother your neighbors but then you also need to make sure that you can have a rock band in room a and then a rock band in rooms b and c with minimal uh, sound leaking through. And that's something that's very important. And most people wouldn't be able to make um, rock and, and jazz and funk and any other uh, real-time music, let's call it, without rehearsal spaces unless they have a massive basement or something, which not everybody's yeah, so lucky needed. to have. <laughs> so so yep. um, do you... Wh- wh- what's your favorite part about running a rehearsal space like that do you get to meet a lot of cool musicians do you tend to stay out of the way for them what is that like you know what's funny is since we opened i was initially very actively involved in in the day-to-day operations and as you know now things have really evolved at length where a lot of our rooms are hybrid rooms now um we originally had four recording rooms and eight rehearsal rooms with not much crossover there right we had a recording block and rehearsal block but what since has happened is what we didn't really fully appreciate or realize is that First of all, there is huge surge in demand for hourly music recording, which we didn't even wasn't really even on our radar in terms of one of our principal revenue streams. Sure, we offered recording in our recording block, but mainly we built the recording studio to service our our needs internally for audio process for film and television. Right. But yeah, boy, were we wrong! And again, we got lucky here, like especially <laughs> in um, in the electronic music and the hip hop communities. Mm. They sort of quickly caught wind of length and kind of made it a bit of a second home for them. And what we didn't realize is that, yeah, you know, everybody in Bob's uncle has access to their own home studio with an interface. But yeah. <laughs> first of all, their places might not be suitable to actually use as a hangout and a, and a social environment, which is a lot of the same reason why people sure. like coming to rehearsal spaces is to hang Good out with point, their friends. Yeah. And, right. True, but also yeah. a lot of people don't have access to that same high end gear, which Maybe they don't need it for their whole project. We do very little. People don't mix very much at our facility. But for the front end recording, for laying down like a hip hop uh, a vocal or or any vocal for that matter, or to put the final touches on a mix, yeah. that's when they come and really make use of our facility. And that's become really popular amongst recording artists as well. So, um, sorry, I think I digressed there for a bit. But um, initially, I was uh, very involved in the rehearsal aspect of things. And then as the room sort of became... Uh, as we realized recording demand sort of really became really popular, we started to reconfigure our rooms and really offer a lot more robust recording services there. But at the same time, our film and TV business was still also doing really well because um, that side of the industry, in Toronto at least, was doing extremely well. So as we kind of grew everything, we began hiring more and taking on more staff. And I kind of almost stepped away from the rehearsal and recording management myself. Uh, mm. And left that to our studio manager, who's doing a great job of running the facility. So to answer your question, Matt, um, I'm not actually that involved in that aspect of the business directly anymore. I do manage our studio manager. She manages it. But um, uh, yeah, that's kind of how things evolved in terms of uh, the management structure for the business. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I guess that's just a part of the whole growing a business process, right? Some of the things that you love the most and that you're most hands-on involved with early on. Things, as things evolve, you kind of get pulled in other directions and the need, you know, to be in yeah. other places. So I get that for sure. I had a question. You were mentioning the gear and being specific about, you know, the types of gear that are needed. Um, mm. How, what was that process like, just as far as narrowing down what types of, you know, drums, amps, et cetera, you're going to have? Or were there any, I mean, you wouldn't have to say, but any, was there any, like, partnership involvements with companies or was this internally decided? Yeah, great case. question. Um, to answer your first question, uh, the process was rigorous. We we knew when we were opening our facility, if we were going to give this a go, because obviously we had to take on a massive debt load between the real estate and everything else, that yeah. when you crunch the numbers, re you realize that at that point, it's really worth the extra. If you believe an extra investment in investing in top quality gear and really responding to people's needs, yeah. can even get you a little bit more room occupancy. That makes all the difference for the bottom line. And even though it's going to cost you more up front, the investment, if you do believe strongly that it's going to increase your occupancy, is well worth every penny you put into it. So we weren't afraid in order to spend that extra in order to deck the rooms out with top quality gear. We also, you know, as you know, it's not just about the quality, it's about really responding to the needs of our our, our client base. So yeah. we were tried to be really, really meticulous with gear selection. And I'm talking about sometimes, even when it came down to the mic stands and the keyboard stands, we would get eight different models from our suppliers and vendors and shoot them out one versus the other versus the other. And we brought in other musicians to really shoot them out as well. And we sent out surveys to our colleagues and tested them out in our current rehearsal monthly room. So we knew we had to pay extra close attention if we were really going to try and make a real go of this because, you know, again, this facility financially would fall flat on its face quickly if you only got kind of modest occupancy. But we knew it could be a viable business if we got the kind of occupancy numbers that we were hoping to get. And we knew we could only really do that with that extreme attention to detail. Yeah, um, yeah. So then to answer your second part of the question, yeah. So a part of that process, once we actually made the final selections, that's where he went to town and we started talking directly to some of the manufacturers and to the distributors in and around both, both in the country internationally and told them exactly what we're looking to do and obviously had some pretty good success with some of them um, because they knew that having their products in a public facility like ours where there's a huge number of musicians coming through is going to be good marketing for them good branding and um, so and great exposure in general so yeah, we struck out with a few, and that did guide a couple of our choices. But for the most part, at that point, we kind of decided what our products were and which products we wanted in our facility. And in some cases, we got no, we got distribution relationships with some of our suppliers and vendors. In other cases, we didn't, but it didn't stop us from pulling the trigger because we wanted to make no compromises in terms of the quality and the best fit for the kind of gear that was in our studio. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You definitely yeah. want to do that. Do you guys have any plans on... Um, expanding, like having another location ever? Ooh, um, yeah, um, you never know what the future might hold in that respect, for sure. Um, mm -hmm. But in the more immediate future, and we, this is public knowledge, so you can feel free to share the information. We are, it, within the next few weeks, actually, we're going to tender. We've already submitted for permit for phase two of our facility, which I don't know if you guys knew, but there's a whole second floor above the first floor, which is currently just a couple of management offices and unoccupied space. 
Oh, so awesome. yeah so fast forward we're going to start construction in about two months time and we've got a whole whack more rooms of different sizes configurations and themes coming on board on the second floor mm, and something that's really exciting nice. and special is we've got a couple of big uh sound stage well small by industry standards but big for link standards we got two sound stages coming on board video studios on the main floor which are also going to be used as really really dope production rooms as well so oh, we've got a lot of exciting new offerings coming on board and a lot of uh yeah so we're very excited about that and we're starting construction shortly and i think realistically we're probably looking at an opening date maybe sometime late next year or even early the year after so oh, very cool. still a That's ways incredible. away but the uh the gears are definitely in motion something to look forward to guys that's super absolutely cool. yeah 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 thanks well, so much we can hear more about that when it uh actually does open out absolutely. maybe we can have you back on to talk about some of the cool stuff that's happening there absolutely maybe at the yeah. time we'll bring our my partner who's also the construction manager on board and he can tell you get a bit more into the weeds about some of the really cool acoustic stuff because we've got some pretty high performance construction going on like we're putting in a two inch concrete topping on a layer of high performance rubber on the second floor to stop the vertical noise intrusion. Awesome. And the HVAC awesome. system is pretty decked out. A lot of, a lot of cool construction considerations for uh, when you're building a facility like this. Looking forward to yeah, I'd love to hear more about that for sure. Actually, maybe yeah, we'll have to do a part two um, with some of those field recorders and maybe do it on location. Something like that. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> we'll work it out. I was like, thanks so much for uh, joining us. I know our time kind of flew by. It was packed with great information, cool stories. So we really appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, this was a lot of fun. If, yeah, thanks. A, a final question, maybe from myself at least. I'm not even a question, but could you just maybe just give some words of advice to either musicians, creators? I don't know, whoever, just some words of advice on maybe the greatest entrepreneurs. Entrepreneur, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, Can't forget that's, us. That, that's a tough one. But you know what? Um, <clears throat> I think you have to be good at what you do and you, uh, and you have to be talented and you have to make good decisions. But ultimately, the one thing I've learned that I think hard work is maybe the most important skill set above all in order to give your chance, maximize your chances of success, not mm -hmm. only in the music industry, but in pretty Life. much anything you do. I think yeah. hard work and dedication, maybe more than anything else, can really maximize your chances of success. I like it. And, uh, Wholeheartedly yeah. agree. It sounds cliche, but I, I, I do very much believe that to be very true. Yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. know what? No, to paraphrase right. myself right. uh, from a previous episode, don't be afraid to suck, but don't suck. Yeah. Pretty much, right? <laughs> don't be afraid totally. to suck, but don't suck. Yeah. yeah. You gotta We're be fortunate that not being good totally. Yeah. <laughs> We're fortunate that people have responded really well to our facility, but I can't even I could go on for, for hours about how many mistakes we've made along the way. And yeah. a lot of the preconceived That's notions about how we thought we wanted to build these rooms in the facility. Once we actually sent out our surveys and got user feedback, some of the things we realized were so far off the mark, right? Mm, and hindsight yeah. it seems almost silly, but yeah. 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 So I guess one other piece of advice is whatever you think is the right way to do things or what you think will appeal to people is not necessarily what will actually appeal to people. So do your Absolutely. homework and, you know. Very true. Yeah. Audition stuff before you release it to market. And that can apply to music, the music you're releasing itself or a business model or, or anything really. So great advice. Awesome. Put your ego aside. <laughs> it's really important. Yeah, very yeah. true. That's yeah. what I said. <laughs> not sure. Thanks so much, Ryan. <laughs> really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That was great.
As a podcaster, you know that great content is only half the battle. The other half is finding the right hosting platform to reach your audience. That's where Captivate comes in. With unlimited podcasts, advanced analytics, and personalized support, Captivate has everything you need to grow your audience and monetize your show. Join the thousands of successful podcasters just like us who trust Captivate for their hosting needs. Visit dnaairwaves.com slash Captivate today to start your free trial.